the jetpack. Well, hello everybody, and welcome back to the weird and season three, the season of memories and magic. I have to say, folks, that I just said to Dan just before I hit record that. Okay, you're the lead on this episode, so I know you're going to open up the episode with burp a derp a derp a jetpack, and uh, he did. <laughs> uh, hello, folks. My name is Dan. That magical voice you just heard uh, was Riley's, and uh, we are the weird, and we are here for our third season. I can't believe we survived. Season three. Yeah, and uh, we were just talking before uh, we started recording about how long it feels like since we last did this. Uh, and I'm living in a, a completely new house. In a new province. In a new province. Well, not a new province, but a province new to me. I thought Quebec was just formed like a few years ago. It feels that way sometimes. And you're living in the mountains now. I'm living in, yeah, I'm living in a valley between mountains, which is actually incredible because I can look from most of my windows and see a mountain uh, covered in beautiful, uh, beautiful trees. And I can't wait until the fall because it's going to be breathtaking. So where you live, I don't know if you know this, but it is the oldest mountain range in the world. Did you know that? It is not. It is. And part of the reason why they're not so grand and tall anymore is because they have been exposed to so many uh, ice ages and glacial grinding that they've been worn down to sort of the more hilly look that they have now versus you know alp-like mountains the alps and the and, and like the himalayas and stuff they're new they're like newer mountains well they purchased them all right so let's get right into it yeah, let's get right into it. I'm so happy to be back. I just want to talk about weird stuff. Yeah. Uh, in case you're joining us for the first time, my name is Riley Stewart. I'm Dan Lajwa. And we're the hosts of The Weird. And each week we take you on a wild ride into some of uh, the planet's most unusual, strange, and wonderful tales. Yeah, that's what we try to do at least. This week, Riley, uh, this story actually comes from one of our listeners. Oh. Yeah. Originally from Newfoundland. He's uh, an East Coast Canadian. Uh, Brad Vardy uh, sent this uh, story idea to me and it's great because it's one I had never heard of. I certainly hadn't seen it in any of my reading over the last uh, year. And I love it because it reminds me of summer. It's This is the type of story you tell around the campfire. Oh, I love that. I love mm -hmm. that. It, it's also one of the oldest and best known ghost stories in New Brunswick, which again is east coast of Canada, an interesting province because it uh, it has a huge you know coastline into the Atlantic, the Bay of Fundy, but it's also very has a, a there's a big landlocked part of it, and it's actually more known for its forestry and logging and lumberjack past than it is necessarily for its sailors and you know. Things like that. So if you ever drive through it, you're very aware the evergreen forest is vast, dense, and just stretches on and on. The drive is yeah. incredible. And it's so heavily forested. It's, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, and, and lumber is a massive industry. Out and if there. you know, if you're, uh, you know, from the States or if you know geography, it would be just north of Maine. Yes. Yeah. Which you know, you know that area well. Well, I'm from New England. If you ever have driven through the heavy forests of Maine, it feels exactly like that. Right. A lot of pine trees and... Yeah, coniferous trees, yeah. not a lot of deciduous mm -hmm. and very dense. So this tale takes us uh, specifically to a place called Miramichi, 
The Miramichi, of course. Which is the largest town in northern New Brunswick. It's situated at the mouth of the Miramichi River, where it enters Miramichi Bay, which then flows into the Atlantic. It's heavily forested still, and it lies in the Appalachian Mountain Range. And it's a beautiful, rugged country, which we've, you know, the whole province is quite beautiful, this area especially. Prior to European settlement, the Miramichi region was home to members of the Mi'kmaq First Nation. Acadians and French settled in the area in the 1750s. Loyalists and Scott, uh, the Scots soon followed in the late 1700s. But by the time of our story in the mid-1800s, the area is most heavily populated with Irish trying to escape the famine in their own country. Ah, uh, the famine we've discussed at several on several occasions on this podcast. Yeah, and and as as mentioned before, the main economic drivers at this time are Atlantic salmon fisheries and uh, the lumber industry. By the way, Dan, I don't know if you knew or not, but one half of my family is Hebert, H-E-B-E-R-T, and they were part of the original French that settled that area as Acadians. And mm-hmm. um, you can trace my family back to a gentleman named Louis Hebert, and that's half of my lineage, and he was an apothecary. Oh, interesting. Which is interesting, right? Way back in the day, he was an apothecary, and he's quite well known. So the family is quite well known, but they were the Acadians, and they are heavily, heavily present in that area. So at this time, their story takes place, the Acadians had either been deported, mm-hmm. you know, to Louisiana or other parts of uh, North America, or they had escaped to Quebec. There are pockets, of course, that stayed behind and hid and, and uh, tried to evade the English. But um, primarily now you're looking at mostly Irish families moving in. A lot of the lumberjacks were Irish, of Irish uh, descent. Well, the Irish seem to always congregate historically where there was harder labor, right? They seem to be more focused on labor. Well, they are impoverished people and you take what jobs you can get. Right. So they would be willing to take on the labor. And they're hardworking. They, they had the, uh, the stamina and strength, perhaps, because they were agricultural backgrounds and used to hard work. So the mysterious events of our story begin abruptly in 1869 or 1875, depending on the source. And I found that really strange because there's lots of accounts of this Mm -hmm. story that I'm about to tell. And there are these key points where they're vastly different. And, but anyway, I've tried to do the best I can to cobble what I think is the most likely a true story. I think that happens a lot in the stuff we cover, especially if it's more folkloric, because, you know, it's just been transferred over generations. Oral tradition, right? You're dealing with people that a lot of them that weren't literate. So there was writing that came out of this, like uh, people mm-hmm. first uh, uh, witnessed, like, what, what word am I trying to use? I was going to say first witnesses. What word is that? I don't know. It sounds like a religion. Yeah. Like people who saw the event. Why can't I think of that word? The original witnesses? I don't don't know. know. Uh, Even that doesn't make sense. Oh my God, I'm rubbing off on you. Uh, (laughs) So it has firsthand accounts. That's the word. That's what I was trying to say. Firsthand account. That's good. There are firsthand, there are, and there are, but a lot of it was verbal stories passed down and, you know, dates I'm sure go by the wayside when you start dealing with that. So this uh, story takes place in either 1869 or 1875. And it happens, the initial story happens in either late fall, early winter. Uh, and it's in the forests south of Miramichi along the Dungarvan River in a nondescript lumber camp perched on its edge. A young cook newly arrived at the camp named Ryan Garman was reputed to have had a quantity of money 
which he carried in a belt about his waist, which apparently was a common thing. Carry your money with you. Carry your money with you. Yeah, exactly. It's like traveling, right? It's dangerous. So you keep your money close to you. Ryan would be one of the ones that would stay back in camp. The lumberjacks would go off for the day's work and the cook would stay behind and prepare the meals. So that, and I'm sure keep the camp clean and things like that. But he would be alone in the camp most days. One evening, though, the men returned to find their boss who returned early and was already in camp and the young cook was dead. Oh, the boss said that the cook had died for no known reason. However, the men noted that the money belt was missing. It snowed very hard that night and it was impossible to take the cook to town for a decent burial in a graveyard. So the body was buried by a small spring since known as Whooper Spring quite near the camp. You know I love that name. How could I not? Whooper Spring? Well, you'll, you'll find out why it's called that too. Good. Just a moment. The following night, the woods resounded with unearthly whoopings and shoutings. Despite the deep snow, the whole crew headed for town the next morning. They were terrified. The company had to send in another crew because they refused to return. But they too left, as did a third crew. So these crews would show up and they would hear these horrible noises in the woods at night. And it scared these tough. These guys are tough. It scared them so much that they refused to go back. Well, they're probably also superstitious by nature, right? Yeah, I'm sure they are. Two years later, a well-known lumberman, Paul Kingston, was hauling supplies to another camp on the Dungarvan late in the afternoon. Hearing a whoop, which he took to be some of the loggers, Paul answered. And this is a quote. Then all hell broke loose. There was a bedlam of sound whoops and yells. Shouts came from all sides. The horses plunged, reared, and broke all the rigging. Eventually, the noise died down and Paul made his way to the camp. He was not the only one to hear the whooping, which took place at intervals over the next 37 years. Wait, what? 37 years. 37 years of whooping. Not all the time, but yeah, in intervals. That would wear a body down. Mm-hmm. Woodsmen were afraid to go into that section of the woods. In the five years that followed the original event, the whoops would come quite close to the logging camps in the area, and it was said that their presence scared the horses and even the tough lumberjacks who worked there. Few people in the region could write back then, so we have an incomplete picture of exactly what happened. However, one man wrote of his encounters with the whooper. George Scott, who claims to have seen the whooper, wrote that it stood upright on two legs and looked like a man. He claimed to have been chased by it in the woods near the caves at the head of Clearwater Brook. While making his escape, he lost his coat. The people in the area thought George Scott was chased away from the whooper's lair. There was a series of caves the size of comfortable rooms linked by passageways at the head of Clearwater Brook, which is some distance from Dungarvan. If you look on the Google map, they almost run parallel and at points they're like like not quite a hundred kilometers away, but they're, they're, it's far. So we're talking about a large forested area here. Okay. Uh, where the original incident occurred and where this now is, is happening. I'm also fascinated by these caves. In 1870, uh, 1874 was a particularly bad year for spring flooding and the caves were completely inundated. After the water subsided, the haunting screams ended. The locals mustered up the courage to explore the caves. They were abandoned, but
but it seemed as though they may have been lived in at some point. Inside, they found the bones of, a small, of small animals, scattered ashes from fires, and the tattered remains of George Scott's coat. Oh. Fifteen years later, in 1889, there was a new generation of loggers working in the woods. They thought themselves more sophisticated than their fathers and dismissed the stories as old-fashioned silliness. You know, they were those young, spry 1889ers. They were all wearing <laughs> neon uh, lumberjack coats, had uh, like pins at the bottom of their logger pants. And crazy hair. And crazy hair. They would, they would spike their hair with sap. Uh, go to work on log skateboards. I'd like to see a log skateboard. Yeah, that'd be cool. Did you ever try to do one of those log things where they, you know, they put logs on rollers and you can feel what it would have been like to do a log I'm, roll? I, would, I have no idea where you would do that. Like at a museum? I've never been to a museum. They have a couple of logs and you get up there and you can feel what it would have been like to roll Look, on Look, I've been log. to every museum in this city and I've never seen that exhibit. I think you made that up. You just get up and it's tactile and you try to uh, to roll on the log and it's really difficult. Really, really difficult. Well, I, I, yes, I would imagine it, it is. I, I, well, you know what? Actually, I shouldn't say been to a water park that had something like that. No, this was just to show you what lumberjack life was like. I just go to the pub. Oh, God. Anyway. So, uh, they, so these, these new, uh, lumberjacks felt like kind of like us hearing this story. They felt the same way. This is not something supernatural. This is not a ghost. This is most likely. Uh, an animal. And in fact, what they thought it was, was something called an Eastern Panther or Cougar. It's the same thing, uh, which is now extinct. And apparently this animal can make really strange noises that you wouldn't always associate with a cat. Make noises that would sort of trick prey and confuse and stuff like that. Or they could make yowls and, and things that were strange. So some people, and to this day, some people contend that's what people were hearing. Had this particular species of cat been known to whoop? Well, they have been known to make odd noises, but no, not necessarily whooping. Was it this? Like, was it, I'm, was it this? Whoop! Like, is that what they heard? I think so. Okay. Yeah. One of the count that I read was that Ryan Garman used to make that noise a lot when he was alive. The cook. Yeah. He'd make these whooping noises like out of excitement and being a goof, you know? And oh. uh, so that's so the, the original guys who heard that noise, um, you know, his, his workmates were sure that it was him. I wonder if it was a skinwalker. So these guys don't believe any of these old wives tales that have been passed down in the last few decades. But all that changes when the whooper reappears. It was the autumn of 1889 when the blood curdling screams began to be heard again. Though the old timers claimed that the screams were the same, the location now was very different and they were back around Dungarvan. So remember the, the events that had occurred with the caves and all that, that was near somewhere called Clearwater Brook. We're back now in the original area of this where the cook was, was murdered. Okay. Although the haunting screams were the same, the behavior was much different and far more brazen now. Oh. The whooper was now breaking into logging camps and cabins when people were away and making off with flour, salt cod, and pork, not the kinds of feats a cougar could manage. And also probably not something a ghost would do too, I, 
I'd have to put that out there. Particularly frustrating for the loggers was that the whooper was targeting their depot camps, where they spent summer stocking up foods for their winter logging seasons. Fear of the mysterious whooper and its ghostly howls spread, and people living in the area became afraid to go outside at night. One of the most famous encounters was by some loggers who had to stay the night in a cabin in the area and were passing the time by playing cards and drinking. Late in the night, they started hearing screams coming from somewhere outside. And these screams are described as they're these whoops, but they're, there's, they're violent whoops. And they're repetitive. And they're loud. That's disturbing. It is disturbing. Imagine that. You're in the middle of nowhere. And someone is screaming. Any noises coming from the woods at night are the worst thing. Do you remember? I think that for me, that was the most horrifying part of Blair Witch. Yeah, the rocks. And the no- and, and voices and the in the distance. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. Oh like, my God. Yeah, that's right. Oh. All of that. That to me was the scariest part because... You're, you're, there's something out there and you're very vulnerable when you're out yeah, at right. night in the yeah. woods. You feel very vulnerable. So right. I get this. I'm, I get how disconcerting that would be. Mm-hmm. So knowing about the whooper, most of the loggers decided to play it safe and they stayed in the cabin together and they tried their best to ignore the sounds. Apparently they can, some continued to play cards and decided to just drink and, and, you know, allow that to calm their nerves. Others tried to have a, a, a sleep. However, there was one drunk logger who decided he was going to try and pick a fight with whatever was making the sounds. And so swaggered outside and into the darkness. And he was never seen again. Oh my God. I did not see that coming. A local man, Tom Hunter, apparently wasn't scared. He drove his cart and two horses along the Dungarvan after dark one late autumn night heading home when the blood-curdling screams pierced the still darkness. His horses were spooked and fell into the river, dragging old Tom with them. As he tried to quiet his spooked horses, he heard a haunting, maniacal laughter ringing out. And this is different, not the whoop, this is crazy person laughing. Tom concluded, and I love this, Tom concluded that God was punishing him for swearing. <laughs> and it was said that he never swore again, apparently, after that. Well, some good came of it then. Yeah. And and I should note that a lot of this, uh, I'm getting this, a lot of this is a secondary source, but the primary source for this is coming from the area. Uh, one of the, the authors that, um, that I was reading, he's a local historian. And this is a lot of stuff you'll find in the museum in, the, in Miramichi. Cool. I got to go because I go down that area all the time yeah. to visit my dad. You know, I got to say something too. If swearing was the first thing that he went to in terms of sins that he would be guilty of, he must have had quite a potty mouth. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he must have been quite a good guy if that's no, the No, but worst he thing must he have really of. laid it on thick. Well, you yeah. know, because if, if, if you were going to say, you know, I'm being punished for a sin and that's the first sin that comes to mind, you must be a real old potty mouth. Well, like you. Yeah, I, I, I own that. But they say swearing is a sign of intelligence, so poo on you. Well, and that's why I don't swear. And I have trouble finding my words. You swear. Not on this show. No, but privately. Oh, yeah. I'm horrible. I'm a pirate. All right, let's get back to the story here. One year later, Tom was making his way back home when night began to fall. Not wanting to risk another encounter with the whooper, 
he stopped to spend the night in an old abandoned logging camp. Knowing the camp was home to many skunks, he lit a candle at the head of his bed to ward them off. Three times that night, old Tom awoke to find his candle gone. Three times, he lit another candle. Oh, the God. third time, the door to his cabin was left open. When Tom went to check the door, there were fresh, bare human footprints in the thin layer of fallen snow covering the ground. It's not shoe prints, but actual human footprints in the snow. Oh, dear. The news of the footprints spread quickly through the Dungarvan. Siege mentality began to take over, and every disturbance in the forest began to be attributed to the whooper. Reminds me of the uh, Mattoon, the mad gasser. Yes. Right? Everything that they hear and think is, oh my God, it's the gasser. People barricaded their doors at night and became fearful of every strange sound. Finally, the matter became one of such concern that in 1912, a father Murdoch of Renu took a party of men to Whooper Spring. This is where um, Ryan Garman's body was buried. Okay, okay, so this, this is the site of the original incident, more right. or less. They dug the bones of Ryan out of his lonely grave and reburied them in the cemetery at Renu. Over the wilderness grave, Father Murdoch read some holy words from the Bible and made a sign of the cross. One source claims that he actually performed an exorcism to expel the spirit from the area. Okay. Now, some say Father Murdoch succeeded in quieting the ghost, but others declare the fearful cries of Ryan could be heard to this very day. Why move the, why move the bones? I'm not following the because logic. Because it wasn't on, on, on sacred ground. But so? Maybe to put him at rest. Maybe. Well, did they think that he, it was him? They did. A lot of people really, truly believed that it was his ghost. Okay, because that's a, yeah, I don't follow that logic. That's weird because he was killed by this apparition. No, no, he was killed, they think, by his boss. Oh, I'm stupid. I wasn't following this. Well, okay. maybe if you swore more often. Yeah, no, remember I mentioned uh, that, the boss had returned early. The, the workers all came back and it was just the boss that was there. I Maybe I wasn't clear enough in that. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. The thinking is that the boss is the one who murdered uh, Garmin for his, his money. I didn't get that at all. Okay, now it makes sense. So, so Ryan's pissed. He's pissed. He's a pissed, restless spirit. By moving his body to... Uh, an actual, not sacred ground, but is it sanctified, I think is the word? Hollowed. Hollowed ground? Hallowed. Hallowed ground. Whatever. Hallowed. Putting it there, they were hoping to put it at rest. Now, see, what I would have done is found the money belt and returned it to him, and he would have been a happy ghost, and off he goes to heaven. Right. Now, here's the thing. Was there another possible culprit? And I'm being sincere here. Uh, There's a lot of accounts, a lot of firsthand accounts of, of... people seeing things and, and certainly hearing this. Was there another possible culprit? Was it perhaps not a ghost? I don't think that makes a lot of sense, especially when no. you're, people are talking about food being stolen or even in the caves, the, the animal debris, you know, the someone was eating. Ghosts don't eat. Do you know what's troubling me about that? The one thing that makes it a bit weird for me is the fact that they stole flour because you don't right. steal flour unless you know what to do with it. So... I have something I'd like to add to this story because someone may have partially solved this mystery. Oh, really? And then opened up more doors and more mysteries, but that's okay. Go for it. 
Frank Rustine was a Fredericton reporter who worked at the legislature and an amateur historian and has been described as the father of New Brunswick tourism for his tireless efforts to promote the province. So this would have been the late 1800s. Again, mm-hmm. I tried to get um, where this story picks up. I tried to get an exact date and could not find one at all. Okay. In a major coup, Rustine had convinced a high-profile American reporter who worked in Washington, Frederick Erland, to come to New Brunswick to go fishing with him in Miramichi. Erland was going to write a series of stories about his time in New Brunswick for his many American readers. Because Erland was so prominent, this meant that some of the most powerful Americans in the country would read about New Brunswick. Rustine was very proud of himself for convincing such an influential American to visit his humble little province. The Fredericton reporter and his esteemed American guest, along with their two guides, plus a cook, made their way to Miramichi through Dungarvan. Much to Rustine's frustration, the local people they met there kept talking about screaming ghosts in the woods, breaking in and eating their food. The reporters, their guides, and cook brushed these stories off as local superstition with jokes. However, this was very embarrassing for Frank Rustine. This was most certainly not the image of New Brunswick he wanted potential American tourists to hear about. You know, because they hear that and they think it's just a backwater, uneducated people and... Super superstitious, just, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, yeah deliverance don't. feel, right? Yeah, abs- ab- yeah, very good. A hundred years good. before that <laughs> yeah. ever came out. The five men made camp on the night of July the 12th in an abandoned logging camp in Dungarvan. Though it was the height of summer, it was an unusually cold night, so they lit a fire in an old stove in their dilapidated cabin. They were awoken in the night by a high-pitched scream in the cold darkness. Oh, wow. Shaken, the men were unable to fall back to sleep. As they lay awake, they saw a dark silhouette darken the open doorway of their cabin. One of them lit a candle and they saw an old man wearing tattered rags with long disheveled matted hair standing in their doorway. He was carrying an old rusty axe. Although from the way he behaved, he didn't seem like an immediate threat. The old man tiredly walked past them up to their dying fire and began warming his hands over the embers. The two reporters tried to gently question the mysterious man, but he largely gave incoherent replies, making loud noises and screams. And in that way, reminded me a lot of you. Thanks for that. However, the mysterious old man did know some limited and broken English words and phrases. The reporters gathered that he had spent most of his life in the woods, that he lived on a diet of berries, nuts, frogs and birds he carried with him a tattered catholic bible when food was offered him he would make a christian blessing in what may have been latin and then devour the food as if he were famished he was barefoot but carried a pair of boots without soles slung over his axe who is this hermit wrote Rustine. what was the secret of his tortured mind how long had he endured the solitude of the force without weapon fire proper food how had he survived the rigor of northern winters without proper clothing or shelter the two reporters offered the stranger a bed but he refused it and slept curled up in a ball outside of their cabin on the cold ground Hmm. the reporters were convinced the old man was the whooper based on the sounds he made 
The next morning, the mysterious old man refused breakfast when offered and left, barefoot, walking off into the woods. Before he left, however, he apparently permitted Frederick Erland to photograph him. Now, that same autumn, about four months after Rustine met the whooper, he was seen again some 200 miles away in Upper Millinocket, Maine. Okay. A team of sportsmen hunting near a lake stumbled across an old man in tattered clothes, sleeping next to the dying embers of a fire. He had neither compass, nor matches, axe, nor blanket. Are you going to throw up? That's a tart apple juice. It's orange juice. No, it's a fresh-pressed apple. You snob. Yeah, I know. The Mainers described him as a sad old man with stooped shoulders and a shuffling gait with a disturbed mind. He expressed to them that he had only eaten berries, frogs, dead fish, and grass for the past 12 days. The Mainers invited the whooper to stay with them, and for several days he did. They fed him, clothed him, gave him money and food. They also apparently photographed him. The Mainers offered to take the whooper home with them, but he indicated he wanted to go across the lake instead. They paddled him across the lake, and he got out and began walking down a road. Silhouetted against the setting sun, the Mainers watched him turn off the road and walk straight into the woods. That was the last that was ever seen of the Dungarvan whooper. Frank Christine wrote about his encounter with the Dungarvan whooper, but ultimately chose to not publish the story. After all, this was not the version of his province, the father of New Brunswick tourism, wanted to portray to the world. Rustine would die in an accident four years later in California while promoting his beloved province, and his contributions would be largely forgotten. And I can attest to that, because if you go and search around for him on the internet, you can find stuff, but it's not. There's no Wikipedia page about him, even though this guy worked really hard to try and bolster his province's fortunes. Okay, interesting. And I will note this. So he didn't publish it, but his written account was saved and later recovered. Okay. The more famous Dungarvan Wooper tale seems to have been brought into the mainstream much later by an American reporter, John Cogswell, who wrote lurid and reputedly greatly exaggerated stories for the Boston Post in the late 1920s. In that era of prosperity, New Brunswick was something of a wilderness hotspot that celebrities like sports and movie stars came to visit from all over North America to hunt and fish. This was largely due to the hard work of a very skilled New Brunswick tourism promoter named Doug Black. Doug Black. I'm Doug Black. Welcome to New Brunswick. Black introduced many big-name American reporters to New Brunswick hunting guides who then published their stories. This is how Cogswell first heard the tale, which he may have exaggerated into the story of the murdered cook haunting Dungarvan's forests. While Frank Rustine's meeting of the woodland hermit is just one of many versions of the story of the strange events attributed to the Dungarvan whooper that has fascinated so many for so long, it seemed like the more plausible possibility. Something that should be noted, I mentioned that there were photographs taken of this, was possibly the whooper. This again, that account came from this historian from Miramichi. Apparently those photographs, unfortunately, have gone missing. But there are written accounts of people who looked at them and said, yes, it's the same person in the two photographs. I was going to ask you about that. Same person in both photographs. So definitely this guy was a wandering soul. Okay. So, Riley, that is my story. Okay. 
So it's kind of a forked tongue, the story, right? Because it could it be it could be the ghost, the vengeful ghost of the murdered cook, Ryan, his first name. I think Garmin, right? You said Garmin. Garmin. I can remember Ryan that because Garmin, Garmin made, were the first people to make GPS for your car. So it's easy to remember Garmin. Or it could be this person living in the woods. I was thinking, it's funny because you said hermit. And immediately I thought of like maybe he was a kid whose family died or something. And he ended up becoming like a feral child. This is what I was hoping to do with you right now is sort of because I think the more interesting of these two stories is is the one that's actually probably true. The hermit uh, one. The, the hermit one. And when I was researching this, what instantly came to mind was mostly harmless. Right. OK. You know, uh, but pre technology, uh, social media where we can't we don't see pictures and there's no travel logs that people can write in. And so this person is wandering through the woods it sounds like for you know 30 40 years Mm -hmm. uh why is he wandering through the wilderness can you hear him is that my dog or yours that's not mine that's mine my dog just yelps my dog doesn't bark that was a very masculine bark yeah and and my dog's uh, penny's a a young lady and my dog is a uh, two-year-old gentleman and he goes what and she and she's tiny. She's not big, and she sounds like she's a bear. I love the world we live in. See, no more gender norms. You can just be whatever kind of dog you want to be. There you go. Okay, I'm going to fantasize a bit. I th- would love it if it was a child who's well. I wouldn't love it, but I would like the story to be that it's a child whose parents died because you said he didn't have great uh, language skills. Yeah, that's right. Had very broken English. Had some words that could, he could use. Right, um, but knew a lot in prayer. So maybe he was a kid whose parents used to pray every night. The Bible was an important fixture in their home and maybe they were killed. Maybe they died of some kind of uh, one of many diseases people died of back in that era. And maybe he just was learned how to survive on his own. So one of the interesting things that I read as well was that many locals contend that the whooping started almost immediately after a hurricane that swept through the area. Mm-hmm. In the 1860s, I think it was 1869 or 68. And I was talking to you before the show saying I wasn't going to mention this stuff, but it was apparently the 10th largest hurricane ever to hit Canada. It demolished the area. It was late October, I believe, when it hit. So, you know, there could have even been snow at the time and a hurricane hitting. So some people speculated that perhaps the hurricane had a connection to uh, the whooper. How or why, I, I don't know. But the person seemingly is also dealing with some sort of mental illness you know if they're going around screaming in the middle of the night laughing when a person drives their horse cart into a river and and uh, you know not engaging in a normal you know social way with people so acting like a child perhaps I, i see but if it was a kid who was abandoned i still think that that kid would have instinctually looked for other people to go to mm-hmm you know what really bothers me? I wish they hadn't called it the whooper because every time you said it, I grinned. And I wish it yeah. was the yelper or the hollerer the or the screamer. It's just the word whoop, you know? It's just the whooper. Immediately you hear that and you, you can't help but smile. It makes me think of um, Mr. Whooper on Sesame Street. Yeah, Mr. Oh, hello, Ernie. Hello, Bert. What's that? You want to trade your cigar box so that you can buy Ernie a soap dish for his his rubber ducky 
What's that, Ernie? You want to sell your rubber ducky? Hold up. When you watch Sesame Street, do you recall Mr. Hooper having a slightly British accent? Because that's how you just did that. Hello, I'm Mr. Hooper, and... Oh, hi, Ernie. No, I'm not doing a British accent. You were doing a slight British accent. He sounded... Hello, 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 Mr. Snuffleup, I guess. It's me, Mr. Hooper. And this is why we can't crack 50 listeners. (laughs) (laughs) We averaged three listeners per episode. That's you and me and my mom. Thanks, mom. And two, because Angie was sick last time. (laughs) Yeah, no... Um, no, I know what you mean, but I just, I, I find it fascinating when you start to think about that. Now, I'm sure that that was not super uncommon at the time and that the distance between towns was immense. The frontier was everywhere. And a lot of people were much more likely to live off the land and be successful at it than maybe, you know, you take people today and it's, it's a bit more strange because of course we've softened so much. But still, why did this person uh, not interact with other people? Why did, you know, they scream at night? And uh, it may simply be someone, like you said, who is orphaned or maybe shipwrecked. Maybe there was brain damage. Well, you know, the one other thing that occurred to me, and I kind of hesitate going there because I just don't want it to seem sort of subtly racist of me. But I have to ask, Indigenous peoples in that area, were there any? Yeah, the Mi'kmaq. So originally, could they have possibly not been happy that their lands were being invaded by? Well, at the, that's a great question. At this point in time, we're, they they haven't been there for about a hundred years. Okay, they've been put. They were pushed out a long time before. Of course, they were. Go go colonialization. Mm-hmm. Like we talked with Oak Island, right? That was 1750s when they're starting to to heavily colonize Nova Scotia right. where the Mi'kmaq were as well. Uh, I mean, there was one account that I read that suggested that perhaps it was the spirits of those people, um, you know, because there probably would have been burial grounds and somewhere in that area. And it was trying to scare them off. Here's the other thing that is interesting in the, the final little capper to, to all of this. There are people still to this day who are from that area who will swear up and down that you can still hear it sometimes. Love it. I love that. And, and you know, I have uh, some guys I used to play hockey with uh, that live here in Ottawa now that are from Miramichi. And it's a known thing. This is a very well-known story mm-hmm. uh, in the area. And there are a lot of people who will say, yeah, it's, it's, it's a ghost. Well, I tell you what, listeners, I go down there all the time. Uh, my dad is in Fredericton, New Brunswick. That's where he, he currently lives because he's 89 and he needs to live in a city now. And um, I go down all the time. So next time I go, which should be this coming summer, so a year from now, I will do some investigation and we'll do a part two on this. Put yourself in the woods every night with a microphone. Have you met me? I'm the most non-woodsy person. You have camo shorts. That does not make me woodsy. I hate being out in the woods by myself. Like you live I live in the woods now. I don't mind hiking trails, but uh, not the woods. You literally live in the woods. I don't live in the woods. I live in a settlement in the in you know surrounded by woods. But it's one of the most popular parks in Canada. It's full of people in expensive and clothing. There's 
hiking. I'm sure there's some ghosts in there. I should see if there's ghosts up in the Gatineau Mountains. I'm sure there I'm is. Sure there I'm is. sure there are. Yeah. Superstitious. I think there is a Mackenzie King estate. I'm sure. That place just, look, it's just right? begging for a ghost. That's a good story that we should do. Mackenzie King, he was the longest serving Canadian prime minister. He was our World War II prime minister. And super into the occult. And super into the occult, like big time. And would do seances. So his uh, getaway estate was near where Riley lives, sort of. Mm-hmm. He would do seances there. Yeah. Well, spiritualism was a big thing then. It was. And people weren't afraid of it. They embraced it. It was, you know, interesting. Mm-hmm. I like that story. I like it because I know that part of the world and I like that there's no answers. And that's what we deal with here on The Weird, right? A good campfire story. So you feel free to take that story and tell it at your campfire this summer as you eat s'mores or, you know, drink a can of Dr. Pepper. Or sing, this land is your land. Oh, and I should say, there is a famous folk song uh, called the Dungarvan Whooper and was written about 120 years ago. (gasps) That's all that's you know, about this story. I'm going to try to find it and use oh, it. You'll find it, no problem. And then you can actually use it as you want the, include it. I'll use it as the extra. Yeah. And then we'll see if we get taken down for copyright or not. I don't think so. It's too old. No, but the singing, the person who's singing it might have copyright on that version. There's like old ones. Okay. Like old recordings, which are much creepier sounding too. Good. Yeah. And I'll make them sound even creepier. Okay. All right, Riley. Well, that's my story and my theorizing and what I think. I do think it was a hermit. I don't think it's a ghost. I think people are hearing weird things. And sometimes when you're scared, you will hear things in the dark that maybe aren't necessarily there. I agree. Uh, This, by the way, this is so big. Again, I had never heard of this, but did you know there's a stamp, a Canadian stamp of the Dungarvan Whooper? Oh, I have to see that. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. Well, that's great. I, I love that it's a nice soft opening to season three. Yeah. And not foreshadowing uh, at all what we're going to do for the rest of season three it's going to be dark bloody mean uh we're even venturing into uh, self-help uh episodes where we're going to tell you how to reshape your life uh, and all you have to do is send us uh, monthly installments of 39.99.99 do you know what's funny that you mentioned that you would not believe how many people i know currently who are becoming life coaches oh i hate that <laughs> Like, seriously, like I know so many people who are becoming yeah. life coaches. And a lot of the people that I know who are becoming life coaches could use one. Mm. It's very odd. It's an odd thing. Um, I, like five years ago, everybody was becoming in like in, heavily into yoga. Mm-hmm. And now everybody's heavily into life coaching. Mm-hmm. It is very hot to be a life coach right now. Yeah, because there's a lot of money to be made and people are feeling very sad and have lost hope and they're looking for something. And so you can make money when you play off people's fears and desires like that. Since we're at the end of the episode and like folks, if you don't want to hear any babble, turn it off now, but I got to say something. Have you noticed that in the media for like the last year and a half, it was all about working from home and how this experience has opened up horizons for working from home and proven that it could be done and proven that people are way more mentally happy when they work from home and a work-life balance. And, blah, 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 blah. and now in the last couple of months, I've noticed the media have turned 180 and now all i'm seeing is the dangers of working from home and ceos you have to get your people back to work and they found that one woman they always find that one woman who suffers from anxiety Mm -hmm. who's you know crying and saying i don't think i could ever go back to work and Mm -hmm. they're just trying to turn the whole argument around and i don't understand 
the media are I don't understand. I do. It's easy because they they will write and say the things that shock, the things that, you know, pull viewers or readers in. They don't care if they're going completely counter to what they had said before. Now, that being said with this, perhaps there's research that's showing that people uh, don't do as well from home. There I think isn't the, actually, though. The research is is counter to that. Yeah, and, and my, my instincts would say that it's probably a mix of both. There are people that certainly have floundered working from home, mm-hmm. and there are other people that have flourished. Exactly. And that's exactly my feeling about it as well. It's the same thing with virtual schooling, which I've been a part of this past year and will will be again for another year. There are kids that really struggled with it. Mm -hmm. And I would say the vast majority of kids probably do do better in person. However, there's a sizable chunk of kids who have just completely blossomed uh, in this model of learning. I could tell you, Dan, if I had never had to set foot in a high school, I would be a much happier, better person today for it. Yeah. And, and for me, you know, I've been working with uh, at-risk youth for three quarters of my career. You know, we have a lot of children that are suffering from mental illness and this really can help alleviate an obstacle in their learning. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, there's, that doesn't necessarily make them healthier or better because it's, they're avoiding something that perhaps they need to learn to be able to overcome. But sometimes when you're in a weakened state, that now's not the time to try to build resiliency. Because I can tell you, boots on the ground, that some kids just don't make it through. Yeah. Dan, I loved that story. I'm really glad you told me. That's all I have to say as sort of the uh, epilogue. Thank you. And I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to uh, getting back at it. And it was a lot of fun preparing for this uh, week's show. And I look forward to your uh, offerings next week. Oh, God, I have a bloody rag to throw uh, at the audience next week. I'm going to be telling Ooh. you the story of a Russian cannibal island. Oh! oh, yeah, I know. You know, and I I didn't realize when I first started researching it, how bloody it was going to be. And I apologize for that. But what the hell? It's a story and it deserves to be told. Um, if you have show ideas for us, uh, please, again, feel free to share them. Uh, again, thank you to Brad Vardy for sharing uh, this week's uh, episode with us. Again, I, I never had heard of this. Me neither. It's it's funny. You would think that it'd be easy to find these things, and it is if you know what you're looking for. But if you don't know what you're looking for, um, it's it you know it could be tricky. Mm-hmm. So if you have uh, need ideas, please feel free to send them our way. Absolutely. I know there's a number of people who have who have uh, reached out to us with show ideas, and um, I can say they're all really good. And uh, we'll be getting to all of those in due time. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening uh, to The Weird. We're excited to get going with Season 3. We appreciate your listenership. Come back and see us next week. And we can't wait to regale you with more tales of The Weird. Good night. Good night, everybody.